0: Well, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. In this portion, the Lord is teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And it begins there in verse 9. And since it is a prayer, uh, let's recite it together. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil the word of the lord you may be seated There is a name to be hallowed, there is a kingdom to come, and there is a will to be done. These are God's name, the Lord's kingdom, and of course His will. And we are continuing uh, mainly because Mark Davis said we are. <laughs> I read his little blurb this week and he said, building upon what we said last week, and he's going back to the same passage. And of course, you know, I gave you everything I knew last week. (laughs) So all week long, I've been thinking, how can I add to subtract from or embellish upon or just completely forget about (laughs) what we need to do. But we are continuing that same phrase, Um, thy will be done or your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, just a quick review for some of you that might not have been with us. Last week, we talked about the notion of the will of God. And we said we really don't know the will of God entirely and completely, obviously. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong into us and to our children that we may obey the Lord. And so this gives us some hints about the will of God. We don't know everything, obviously. But because we don't know everything does not mean we can't know something. And the Bible says it's those things that have been revealed to us. That's where we know the will of God is what he has self-disclosed, made known to us. And I highlighted four facets or four particular aspects of the will of God that we discern from reading his word in scripture and seeing about his ways and his works tell us something about his will. And so and I asked you to write them down last week and and use them as kind of a, a guideline when you think about the will of God. And I'll just repeat them for you now. We said God's will is decretive. Decretive means that God pronounces a decree. He plans, he purposes, he says, this is what I will do. And of course, he accomplishes it. Everything the Lord decrees and and declares comes to pass. And he does it by his own operative strength. He does it in his own power according to his own ways. And this is that sovereign, decretive will of God. And it stands above and behind all else. In the final analysis, everything that is done that comes to pass is that which God, in some sense or the other, wills it. Now, what are these some senses or the other? Well, number two. Number two. The prescriptive will of God, the prescriptive will of God is where God prescribes what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live and how he wants us to accomplish the things he wants us to accomplish, how he wants us to obey him. And this is set forth in the entire word of God, especially beginning with the moral law of God. God prescribes what he wants us to do in commandments and in statutes and judgments And in all sorts of things you see throughout scripture, examples that are given of some of the patriarchs and and on and on, God prescribes his will. And then the third way, or the third facet of the will of God is what's known as the dispositive will of God. Dispositive will means his disposition. It was God has a certain settled disposition according to his character. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if that was really the only aspect of the will of God, we would see that come to pass. That's not the decretive will of God. That's the dispositive will of God. Some do perish. Many do not repent. The Bible says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Repent. And if you don't, that's prescriptive will of God. And if you don't obey the prescriptive will of God, then you fall under the fourth category, which is the permissive will of God. There is a sense in which God lets individuals with free will and liberty kind of go their own way and do their own thing. God does not force. God does not make us and turn us into robots nor does he change the course of events in nature and first and secondary and tertiary causes neither is God the author of sin but God does allow things to happen in fact one of the things that's most terrifying or should be if you think about it is the permissive will of God that it is in God's nature according to his permissive will to leave you alone and to let you do just whatever you want to do. Live your own life. Make your own decisions. Go your own way. And freely and fully and absolutely completely ignore God. Deny him. Reject him. You know, God's willing to do that. And we don't know the, with whom or how. That's the mystery of his will. But God has a permissive will. And so you need to always remember that the permissive will of God may let you think you're getting away with something when in fact you're not. His decretive will, his dispositive will, and and his will of of, uh, uh, prescription, that is what he's told you to do, will also come to bear. And they'll all find their final will brought to pass in what is known as the judgment, where God will judge everything and set everything right reward every good work, punish every evil deed, and he will deal with people according to their deeds. Every person will stand before a judgment bar of God someday. When will that happen? At the end of your life? At the end of time? I don't know. Maybe both. But you'll stand before God and the evidence will be there. The books will be opened. And whosoever's name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into everlasting punishment. So don't presume upon the permissive will of God and just slide into an eternity of hell. Now that's the will of God, some facets of the will of God, but we're concerned here at that second part of that little statement, that petition in the prayer, and that is that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So now we're just thinking about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And you had a little bit of a hint of that in the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism that you read a moment ago. Theologians classically identify the works of God. That is the Opus Dei. The works of God are identified in, in three broad areas. One is creation. God works in creation. He has created everything that exists. There is no molecule anywhere in the universe that did not originate in the spoken word in the mind of God. God spoke everything into existence, created out of nothing. So there's creation. In creation, God has set things in order and he has created everything with his wisdom, his divine intelligence. Every time we get a new pair of glasses to put on in the scientific community, we learn more about the the immensity of God's creation and the intricacy of his wisdom. Every time we look further into the space, we see... More stars, more galaxies, more things going on out there. Hubble telescope, whatever you want to use. Go the other direction. Get a better microscope. Get an electron microscope. Get a good microscope. Get a better one. You see more intricately. Before long, you're seeing the quasars, the galaxies, and the faraway things that a human eye used to never imagine. God created all that. And then we now go down into the cell and into the, into, into the um, a thousandth part of a single cell of matter and investigate that. God created all of that. God Almighty is the creator of everything. But let me tell you a, a, a presumption in that that you need to remember that God not only created everything, there's not only a creation day But there is a consummation day. That is that God has created the whole order, not only space and matter, energy and all the rest, but time. God put things in motion and in place on to him a day one. And there will be a eschaton. That's what the word eschaton means, the final day, the last day. God reckons our existence on this planet, in this universe at this time as having two ends, a starting point, creation, and an ending point, consummation. And that's why we are on this planet realizing we're here for God's will to be done on earth. And it's going to be done on earth. And as long as God has a will to do something on earth, there's going to be an earth. So don't worry about the planet being destroyed. Until God's ready to destroy it. The Bible says He will. It'll melt away with fervent heat, and in its place will be a new heaven and a new earth, a complete new renovation. No real stress for a creating God. So there's a consummation, I mean, there's a creation, a beginning point, and an ending point, consummation. And we're here for a season and for a purpose and for a season and for a reason. And our problem is that we need to grasp that and live according to that. So that's God's first bringing about his will on earth. It's the creation and everything that is in it and the consummation and all that that entails. The second great thing that is involved there is, is related to it. It's a corollary and it's God's work in providence God's work in providence. I'll tell you the three right off the bat so you'll you'll be able to keep up with my little outline. Creation, providence, and redemption. Those are God's three works on earth. And each of these come from the divine. God creates everything, but God is also provident over everything. The word provident is from... Once again, two Latin words. And you know both of them. Pro, which means before. And vide, which means to see. It's to video. So God sees beforehand all things that will come to pass. And he provides, we get the word provision. Provision is you see ahead. You have a vision ahead and you take that vision and you prepare. When you provide provision provisions for a camping trip you anticipate that you're going to be outdoors you anticipate you're not going to have electricity of course nowadays you're going to carry a generator with your <laughs> you know you anticipate things and that's what God does God knows all things from the from the beginning to the end and he knows all things that will come to pass upon all supposed conditions that's a quotation by the way out of our out of our uh, <laughs> confession and he provides. He takes care. He takes care of the whole human race. He worries about things like sparrows falling and hairs falling out of bald heads. He counts them and then he has to do subtraction. We'll talk about that a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's the detail and that's the, that's the, uh, the provident of God's providence. God's providence is also what we would think of as history, except historians always write post, after. God works pre and post. He knows things before and he knows things after. In fact, the way he'll say that, he say, I'm the alpha and I'm the omega. So when it comes to providence, God's will being done on earth is God doing his work that way with providence God controls all of history and it's hard I think sometimes when we live in a particular uh, capsule of time and space and and awareness and culture and all the stuff that sort of crowd around us and we can't really see any further ahead of us than the end of our nose and we don't know what's going to happen next it's hard to recognize and remember that our sovereign God who created it all with purpose, who will bring it all to a conclusion with meaning and purpose, is also the one who sees us day by day. And he's provident, he's good. Believe it or not, he's in charge of just all sorts of things. One of which that distresses me the most is to is to see that God raises up kingdoms and brings down kingdoms. I love history, but I'm studying after the fact. God has already seen things flow. And everything's getting ready for that judgment day. God allows the evil to be just as evil and wicked as it can be. That way the trial is going to be kind of easy. God leaves man alone and man multiplies his sin. He goes deeper into depravity. He goes further into his straying and into his wandering. He has more time to run his mouth against God and curse him and blaspheme him and deny him. God just lets men pile up sin against the judgment day. I didn't make that up. That's right out of the book of Romans. And of, who got it right out of the book of Isaiah. So God knows what he's doing and letting things happen come to pass. And that's God's providence. I need to stop right there. We're just we're running short of time again. But there's one more thing. Do you remember I said creation? God's will is done on earth in creation and in providence, in history, and in, in bringing things to pass according to his rule and reign and his will on earth. And then finally, God has a work that he does in Redemption. Redemption. If you look at creation and you see that there's a groaning and that there's a travail and that there's a little bit of what we would call natural evil in the creation, do you think a hurricane is a natural evil? I do, blow through and burn, I mean, and, and drown and blow away and tear up all sorts of property and kill people. That's a natural evil in the earth. Tornadoes, floods, all sorts of things. That's because the earth that God created is all out of sorts. It's all in travail. It's in a convulsion. One of the things that we have been taught in Scripture is that God interferes in the affairs of earth and can change all of that. And he did so in a slight way earlier in history. It's called the flood. God messed with the crust and the surface of the earth causing things to go down, things to come up, the waters to break up, floods all over the earth, just so he could show everybody that he could do it. And when he warns a generation that has become only evil continually, and that's a quotation out of Genesis 6, which is the condition of humanity in the days of Noah. And he ends up with a whole earth full of people and he ends up with eight righteous souls. That had believed his word, believed the gospel, trusted in him, and gotten in the ark. And that's just a picture of what God wants us to do. God's telling us that there's a cataclysmic end to everything. That there is a a dated, stated day of destruction. God has appointed a day in his decretive will that he's going to wrap it all up. He's done it once with water. He'll do it with fire. That's taught in both Testaments. This is not just Old Testament theology. This is the New Testament. And they're identical the same. So what is going to happen? God looks at the earth. It's all messed up. He looks at humanity. It's depraved. Well, God sends a Savior. The question is answered in Jesus Christ. In fact, God himself realizes this is a task. That since God Almighty only can create... Since God Almighty only can be provident, then God only, God Almighty only can be redemptive. And so God the Father plans and determines, marks out, sets up, and puts in place a plan, a purpose of redemption. And the Son... Says, I will go and I will accomplish it. And when Jesus was here, he said, That's what I'm doing. I came down from the Father. I came down from the Father to redeem a people. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. So God, in his redemptive work, sends the Son. And then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God says, I've always been the power of God. I was out there hovering over the earth before creation. And I will be involved not only in the creation, but in the recreation. So the Spirit of God comes and descends upon Christ during his earthly ministry. And all through his earthly ministry gives him the power as a human being to perform these works in the power of God, because Christ was God and man in the incarnation, and now the Spirit of God raised up Jesus from the dead. And then he goes forth to, to put life into the Word of God, that when the gospel is preached, it is as though you're talking to dead people's bones. And the question is asked can these bones live? And the answer is, yes, they can live if what happens? If the Spirit of God, the wind blows upon them and they will be enlivened, they will be brought back to life. And that's what happens spiritually in regeneration, in recreation, in new birth. And that's how God accomplishes his redemption. And it's all based upon what God does in accomplishing that redemption in an unusual way he does it through the death the bloody death of his only begotten son and it's the son of god jesus was in the garden of gethsemane and was facing that death in a matter of a few hours and not just the death the awful ordeal that went before his crucifixion my goodness i mean the crucifixion was almost relief compared to what they had done to Christ in the hours before. The betrayal, the binding, the mocking, the scourging, all of the things that they, the hungering that they had had forced him into, the thirsting, everything you can think of, all the plagues that plague a human soul and body were brought upon Christ. And he endured them all, all the way to an old rugged cross where they brought him to Golgotha, That there they crucified him. And as he hung on that cross, when he gave up his spirit, he said, It's finished. What's finished? Redemption. I've done everything necessary now for the salvation, the redemption of humanity, for the souls of men. And from that will extend the redemption of the planet. The redemption of the earth, who groans and travails, waiting for the redemption of the body. And the first one to do this total redemption is Jesus Christ in his resurrection. He became a second Adam, a new Adam that rose in power and rose in victory and rose to eternal life, which he will impart to his own people by his spirit. That's the gospel message. As I close, I want to give you two words. I just happened to, last Sunday we got through preaching, Matt came up to me and said, Ron, you used a lot of big words. And I tried to think of any big word I used. I couldn't think of any. The only one I think I could use today would be teleos. That's what the end of time, the consummation is. There's a teleos in the creation. That is, God is moving to an end, to a goal, to a conclusion, to a finality. We get, it means distant. We get our word television, telephone, all that stuff from teleos. That's the only big word I could think of to use this morning. And then I found a good one. Substitutionary. Six syllables. But I think you you know what it means. Substitutionary. The death Christ died was substitutionary that is he died a death on behalf of others in place of others. God taught this principle when he ordered and allowed literally thousands upon thousands of little animals of all sorts to be slain in the Old Testament. Bulls and goats and sheep and turtle doves and all the rest. He's teaching that one can shed blood that will atone for another. But all those blood sheddings of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Only the Lamb of God that can take away the sins of the world. And so when Christ came, he shed his blood on that cross. There were wounds in the Lord that oozed blood. There were wounds in the Lord that dripped blood. And there were wounds in the Lord that gushed blood. And the blood came forth. And it's that blood, the Bible says, that Christ took into the holy of holies in heaven and made an atonement for the sins of of his people. Substitutionary. Christ died for us. All we lack gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He who knew no sin has become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It's one dying for another. Substitutionary. The death Christ died is in your place, and it actually saves you By the way, it doesn't make it just possible for you to be saved if you'd like to be. If you would like to add your choice or your reason or your own life to it. If you'd like to add something to it. No, the death of Christ, he actually died in your place. Not a a potential atonement, but an actual atonement. He actually saved you by dying on that cross in your place. And when you trust him, you're in that number. He's called you to that number. The Father has given him that number, and that number certainly and infallibly comes to salvation. And then finally, another word, not a big substitutionary word, but the word penal, a small number. It has to do with penalty. The Bible says that he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's a judgment on you right now. There's a sense in which the gavel has already fallen on your life. You're a sinner. You're unrepentant. You're still a sinner. The verdict is in. You're under condemnation. You literally got that way by being born into it. And you certified, ratified, and made sure of that by actually sinning yourself throughout your lifetime. And now... You have a sentence. The wages of sin is death. There's a death sentence on your life, on my life. But Christ paid it. He served the sentence. He took all the guilt and he satisfied the judge. And we're saved by his death. And then God raised him up so that then he could impart life to us. There may be a third part to this, but I don't think so. I think we'll move on next week. Y'all are patient. I know this was a little bit like a lecture more than a sermon, but God bless you. And I encourage you so much to come to Christ, to trust him, to swear your allegiance to him, to bow before him in faith, seizing upon what he has done. There's not a thing you can do, but just believe it, believe it.